Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of Well-Lit Path. This week, we'll look at what we've been saved to accomplish in Psalm 15. But first, how's your week been? It's been kind of a tumultuous week for me. Uh, There's things going on in the work sphere that have really just kind of been a distraction. Uh, Then I sat down with the Word of God. And I was reminded that while work is important, and I firmly believe that our work should be a part of the way we worship God, it's not as important as the work to which all the saved have been called. And isn't that just like God to bring things into perspective for us? Regardless of our jobs, he's called us to a specific work, to share the gospel with everyone we come into contact with. This this leads me to ask myself, have I done that well? At the end of the day, will I be remembered for the time I spent at work or for the impact God had on the lives around me through me? David here in Psalms 15 gives us a wonderful pattern for how we can show God working through us. So let's jump in. Psalm 15, beginning in verse 1. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them, that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, he that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. David starts the psalm with a question again, but it seems to be one this time that he immediately knows the answer to because he begins to list all the answers. You know, if we were just kind of do a cursory reading of the passage, you could almost come away with a workspace salvation argument. Or could you? And as David asks the questions, the question, Lord Jehovah, who will be with you always? Who will dwell in your presence? Who will be allowed to stand with you and live with you on your holy hill? Well, the glaring answer is only those that are holy. Well, how do we achieve holiness? From the beginning of this journey through the Psalms, we've reiterated over and over again that mankind, okay, let's be personal about this, that you and I are not holy. We're wicked. We're prone to doing wicked things. And if we are this wicked, how can we ever dream to, one, stay with God in his tent? This is the word that we read tabernacle in the text. And two, live with him on his holy hill. What does it take? Is it something that we can do? And again, a surface reading shows that if we walk according to his word, work righteousness, speak truth in our heart, we can get there. That's all we have to do. Oh, 
that and everything else in the passage, which we'll get to. But can we even do the second verse? The, the very first part of the second verse? Can we do the walking uprightly portion of it? Well, that walking uprightly means to walk perfectly before God without blemish. And there it is. Now you're starting to see it a little bit. In our modern definition of uprightly, we may say, yeah, I, I can be moral. I can live with a sound morality before God. Um, that may be true. We may find that we can live morally. If you look around today, you will still see people living morally. But are they living perfectly? According to the old English word, without blemish. Now, I'm a Christian to be sure, but I, I can't say that I live without blemish without fault before a holy God. And can you say that? And you can say it, but you know you'd be lying. And what about righteousness? Can we work righteousness? Well, let's, let's see what Titus 3.5 says about how we can work righteousness. And not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Huh. So I guess we can't work righteousness ourselves. What about truth? Can we speak truth in our hearts? Well, 1 John 1, 8 says that if we say that we have no sin, well, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we can't say that we're righteous or we don't have truth in us. But are our hearts true to begin with? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Well, deceit is the opposite of truth. So if our hearts are deceitful to the point that we can't even know how deceitful and wicked it is, can we possibly have truth in our hearts? Now, I hope you're catching on to where I'm going here because if it were up to us to be graded by our own works, our own hearts, we would never be the people that would abide in God's tent with him or live in his holy hill with him. We're just not capable of that kind of good. And David's not giving us what qualifies us to live here. David is saying that we need to be made, okay, remade into something to live there. It's a transformation that we cannot effectuate upon ourselves. And because we could not be without blemish, God made Christ to be, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness 
of God in him. And that also addresses our righteousness question. But not only in this verse, there are many verses that address how we can be made righteous in him. And just another example of that is 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on a tree, that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. And truth, how can we possibly speak truth in our heart that's so wicked well, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. But how can that truth live in us? Well, when we accept him as our Lord and Savior, finally admitting that we cannot live up to the standard set, that we cannot count on some theocratic scale on which our good and bad will be weighed, we become of God and no longer of the world. Well, that's why 1 John 4, 5 says, We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. And he that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, it's because we're filled with the spirit of truth that he can point out to us what is error and what is righteous. These things that David lists out in this chapter, they're not qualifications that we have to live up to. They're characteristics that define us as followers of Christ. These things aren't present in our lives so we can get to heaven to be with our Father. They show up in our lives because we're going to heaven to be with our Father. They're not indicative of our accomplishments but they are indicative of what God has already accomplished in us. Who will go and abide and dwell with God? Well, you know, you'll know who they are because they'll have the fruit of the Spirit as listed in this psalm. But these fruits here are no different than the fruit we see in Galatians. In Galatians 5, through 25, Paul tells us, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Who is the one that slanders another with his tongue? Well, this is an evidence of a Christian. A Christian will be gentle with his words, meek towards others, considerate of the delivery. It's not that we have to be pacifists. And no, it, that's not what's being inferred here. Paul spoke more about how we are warriors in Christ than he ever did about how we should back down from a fight. What he meant is that we're not going to be the aggressor at the cost of our testimony. When we talk about someone else behind their back or talk evil of someone, does it not usually cause strife? Doesn't it foster hatred? Doesn't it cause division in our communities, in our relationships? David is saying that isn't 
going to be the characteristic of a follower of God. And then Paul tells us that those things are characteristics of the flesh, the hate, the strife, the division. This is what happens when we follow our evil, wicked hearts. And just a few verses earlier in Galatians, Paul defines all of these for us in verses 19 through 20. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't live with him in his tabernacle. They won't dwell with him in his holy hill. Paul tells us that the people with these fruits in their lives, they're not the people who, would abide, who will abide there. And these verses in Galatians really just break out and expound this psalm that we're in. Now, I don't believe for a second that that's coincidence. Paul was a master of the scripture, of the Old Testament, and would have seen the applicable truths in them to the modern-day Christian of his time. And just like we see truths in the Psalms and use the writings in Galatians to supplement them, Paul was using the Psalms as his supporting argument, his guidelines for how to know the followers of Christ. Both Paul and David understood that anyone that was unkind or wished evil on his neighbor was not a godly person. They both understood that a key characteristic of a follower of God was one's love of their neighbor. And Jesus even supports this pattern. Matthew twenty two thirty seven and 39, Jesus saith unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Paul reiterates it multiple times. Romans 13.10, love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And again in Galatians in the same chapter, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It seems like this is a pretty important trait of a follower of God. Not something a follower can do on their own, but it's something that lets you know that they've been changed, that their life is become new. And a Christian wouldn't do evil to their neighbor. Do your neighbors see this in you? And do they see you at all? You know, I've got to admit that I, I struggle a little bit here. I'm wrong, not with being like, I don't struggle with not being evil to my neighbor. But then, when you think about it, maybe I am. If I'm not sharing Christ with my neighbor, is that not evil? Is that, is that not a reproach? No, I'm not picking a fight with my neighbor daily, but in not sharing Christ, 
and witnessing in an attempt to gain my neighbor as a brother or sister in Christ, am, am I not allowing them to stay my enemy? As a Christian, it's so easy to sometimes to say, well, I'm not doing this bad thing. But we fail so many times to look and say, well, but I'm also not doing this good thing either. By not befriending my neighbor, by not inviting them to church, by not making an effort to get into their lives and be a light to share the gospel with them, is the withholding of the good not some semblance of evil? And in not doing the good that I know I should do, isn't that the very definition of sin? I had to ask, fellow Christian, are we guilty of sins of omission? I mean, let's take a moment and take a hard look at ourselves because it's so easy to walk past my neighbor. It's so easy to rush into the house because I, I just don't want to engage in conversation. I mean, I'm a, I'm a very private person. But I can't use that as an excuse. I can't even say that I knew the name of my last neighbor before we moved. I mean, they were a younger family. They had like two little kids. Not once did I get their names. I made no attempt to get to know them. It's just so easy to put my head down and get wrapped up in my own life. My eternity is secure, but is theirs? I may never know at this point. While I'm a follower of God, I cannot let this mean not loving my neighbor become what defines me. Will our neighbors be able to say at the judgment seat, oh, right over there, that child of yours right over there, never told me about your son. Listener, Christian, unbeliever, I'm, I'm really just quite ashamed right now. This psalm that I really wasn't sure of how to approach, it's, it's digging into my life and it's uncomfortable. It's vulnerable. And the word of God will do that to us. If you can read through God's word and you never get uncomfortable, there's some other kind of self-examination that needs to go on. It, it's easy for us to condemn the vile person. We can point them out we can call out their sin. But David is mentioning this in a good light, so I don't want to miss that. Those that are followers of God, of Christ, we can see when another is not a follower. We see the telltale signs. And if we go by David's description and Paul's expert character list, we can identify them pretty readily. What I find to be another key thing here is that David says that they are condemned in our eyes. We see that they're condemned, but in love, we don't speak it to them. While we don't condone their vile actions, we don't speak to their hurt. While we could go on a tirade about how their life is being wasted, we don't. 
In seeing them, we should pity them and their life without a Savior. Our first reaction once we recognize their spiritual state should be love and to share the gospel with them. They, they don't stand condemned by our mouths, but we recognize that they are condemned, and this spurs us into action. And we treat them with no different respect than we would a fellow Christian, but we don't honor them. I found it much easier in my life to begin witnessing to someone about how Christ has loved them than focusing immediately on how much he hates their sin. So we should see that they're condemned and allow that to actuate our gospel-telling command from God to share with them the truth of a Christ who came and died for them. And we can also see Christian traits in another Christian. We give them honor. We recognize their dedication, their commitment to fearing God, to living by his commandments and acknowledging his grace and mercy daily in their lives, in, in our lives. Knowing that it's not them we honor when we positively reinforce the good traits we see in them, rather we're honoring God by recognizing his working in their lives. So tell your pastor it was a good sermon. Let your Bible study or Sunday school teacher know that they delivered the word and God's power well. In honoring them, allowing God to use them, you're honoring the power of God to use them. And it's absolutely okay to recognize that. At the same time, we got to remember it's not just our teachers and preachers. Honor those brothers and sisters that silently work in the background for the furtherance of the gospel. You know, those that clean up after a fellowship meal and, or take the trash out after a fellowship meal. The, the ladies and the young people that watch our babies in the nursery. The guys and gals running the sound room and our social media. The security team protecting our churches and our families. It's okay to honor them that fear the Lord because the honor just flows right on through the Holy Spirit in them and straight up to our Heavenly Father. And listen, for those that get uncomfortable when someone does honor you, learn to be honored. Point the praise to God and learn to take a compliment. Say thank you. Say praise God. Be humble, but acknowledge the honor. It's something that God has commanded us to do, and it's a defining characteristic of them that follow him. And another character trait of a follower of God, those that will abide and dwell with him, deliver on your commitments. Remember that every commitment you make or break can be a reflection of the one that you serve. No, I get that there are extenuating circumstances, but let's be practical. If you've taken a job and you've agreed to perform certain duties, deliver on those duties. Follow through. Be the exemplary employee. Not showing up on time, calling off when you really shouldn't or don't need to, that's not delivering on your commitment to that job. 
parents, and listen, I've been guilty of this too. When you say you're going to do something with your kids, don't make up excuses when the time to deliver comes. Your kids see this and they will begin to pattern their commitments after how you deliver on yours. Do you want them to see Christ in you or someone who allows every tiring day at work or bad mood change when they want to deliver on a commitment? Husbands and wives, you've made a commitment. And while it may be easy to deliver on your faithfulness to your relationship, are you delivering on your commitments to listen, to continually be learning about your spouse? Because as years pass, people do change. Not at their core, but their likes and their dislikes change. Their passions for different interests change. Are you learning to listen and know your spouse in every season of their life that they can be in? You've also made a commitment to share all of your changes and interests with your spouse, to let them get to know you. In your marriage, there's, there's no holding part of yourself back. Your spouse is the person who has to know you the best on this earth. If you let anyone else fill that role you're not making true on your commitment. And don't get me wrong, it's tough to let people in like that, no matter who they are. But if you want a successful relationship with your spouse, I encourage you, let them in. Let them see all of your fears, all of your insecurities. Let them see who you're scared of being. Let them see what you're anxious about. Tell them your crazy dreams and ambitions. Tell them how much you need them and how life would just be kind of meh without them. And tell them all the things that you're passionate about and why you're passionate about them. Make your spouse feel wanted and important. Never change your desire to pursue them. Deliver on your commitment to hold them in high regard. And here I am preaching to myself again. When David says we change not as followers of God, what he means is that we don't decide halfway through a commitment that this is more than we bargained for and we need out. We commit for the long haul in our relationships, in our service to God, because our service to God is just representative of our relationship with him. In our work, and in our fun. And finally, David tells us, you'll know a follower of God by their stewardship of all that God has given them. And this goes right along with the previous verse on our commitments. Are you a good steward of the spouse God has given you? Do you treat them as if they were a gift from God? Or, or do we too often take for granted that God has given them to us so who could take them away? And what about our children? Do we raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord or are we only kind of casually involved in their lives and then wondering why they don't seem to be turning out the way we thought? What are we investing in them? Are we being good stewards of what God has given us? It's easy to think of stewardship 
in a monetary capacity. I'm, I'm a good steward. I tithe. I give to missions. And that's fantastic. Praise God for your faithfulness. Well, what about your time? Are you being a good steward with your time? How much of the time God has given you does he get? Your health? Isn't your health a gift from God? Are you using the advantage of good health in his work, in his service? It starts to get a little dicey when we look at stewardship this way. Are you giving him every Sunday or just the Sundays that are convenient? That, you know, the Sundays that you don't have any other plans. Ooh, but what about Wednesday? What about Sunday afternoon or Sunday night? When the church needs some painters, are you there? What about when a toilet gets clogged or a table needs wiped? Do we go run down a deacon or do we roll up our sleeves, grab a plunger for the toilet or a dish towel for the table? Do you have good health and time? Are we being good stewards of it? I used to be so disappointed when I'd have something like do for church. Uh a lesson, a, a fill-in message, um, a Bible study to get ready for. I mean, the, the list the list goes on. I'd get I'd get disappointed because it took away from my free time. You know, my my me time. Okay, I'll Okay, let's be honest. It took away from my PlayStation time. And we've got to let things like that go. And don't get me wrong, I still struggle with it. And I do still miss some of my PlayStation time. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with having time for yourself. But are you budgeting more time for self than you are for God, spouse, kids, and church? Is that the kind of stewards we want to be? And while David's giving us a list of how a follower of God will live in this world because of how God works through us, it's also a challenge to us. How many of these traits do we need to work on in our lives? In light of this psalm, I have some work to do in mine. And finally, on stewardship, which really goes to the whole passage I can't help but think of 1 Peter 4.10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Be a good steward of your life, and I'll try to be a good steward of mine by allowing God to work on these characteristics in us. Thanks for walking with me a while as we read the word together. Won't you join me again next week and we'll walk just a little further? If you like the podcast, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you have any questions about salvation or general podcast questions, uh, reach out to us via email at podcast at lakeworthbaptist.org.
Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook by looking for LWBC underscore publications. 